Coming up, Authentically Detroit premieres our new series covering economic fairness and the financialization of our city. Donna and I kick it off with a lesson and discussion on the history of Detroit's housing displacement. But first, our hot takes of the week. Our first hot take comes straight out of Bridge, Detroit. Is ShotSpotter effective? Data on Detroit's technology fuels debate. Then, from the Detroit Free Press, feds to announce funding to convert busy I-375 to Lower Speed Boulevard. Keep it locked. We'll be right back. Founded in 2021, the Stoudemire is a membership-based community recreation and wellness center centrally located on the east side of Detroit. Membership in the Stoudemire is available on a sliding scale for up to $20 per year or 20 hours of volunteer time. The Stoudemire offers art, dance, and fitness classes, community meetings and events, resource fairs, pop-up events, the neighborhood tech hub, and more. Members who are residents of the east side have access to exclusive services in the wellness network. Join today and live well play well, be well. Visit ecn-detroit.org. Bridge Detroit is your news and engagement platform that is telling the stories of Detroit is rooted by community priorities. Started in 2020 by Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Stephen Henderson, the newsroom has already established its footing as the go-to source for hyper-local perspectives that asks the hard questions, brings accountability, and searches out real solutions. It's free to become a member of this award-winning news organization. Visit BridgeDetroit.com today to sign up to receive the news delivered right to your inbox. Bridge Detroit by Detroiters for Detroiters. Hello, Detroit and the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit. Today, we are recording at the Audio Wave Network Studios. We are a content partner to BridgeDetroit.com. I am Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens-Davidson. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on all platforms. We drop a new episode every week, so be sure to turn on those notifications. Donna. How is this blessed day finding you, ma'am? Uh, it's finding me uh, a little stressed. What you busy. stressed out about? Well, you what know, you got going on? Something big week. is coming, right? It is, it is. <laughs> you know, I always stress unnecessarily because what to stress solve, right? right. <laughs> but I do it anyway. I know you do it. I, I was a recipient of that stress for many years. Oh, many <laughs> I'd be like, Donna, it's okay. It's going to be fine. <laughs> I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Uh, we suffered a loss um, in my family um, last week. And so we've been uh, preparing, you know, the arrangements for that and trying to, you know, remain in my body while my body and emotions grieve. And so uh, it's been, it's been a challenging week, but also, you know, week of um, reflection, um, and gratefulness. So that is why this episode is a little late this week because I had to just take some time. But I'm Before doing good. We move on. Um, you lost an uncle. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, Russell Jones. Russell Russell Allen Jones. Russell was uh, uh, a man's man, you know, uh, who possessed uh, a quiet strength. He was a man of few words, but when he spoke, it counted. Uh, he served his country faithfully. He served in the Vietnam War. Um, he loved um, his wife, my aunt, um, and his children, my cousins, and he loved family. And he uh, was a brainiac, super smart, super intelligent, but also a realist who kept it real and who, while, while he was alive, was at every major milestone in my life to support um, college graduation. I mean, the list goes on, right? And so uh, he will be missed. He lost his battle um, to lung cancer after, I want to say, going on four years, but he fought um, a good and long fight and um, he's going to be missed. I'm trying not to get choked up. So, yeah. I understand. Yeah. But I think it's important to take time out to honor those people who contributed to who we are, who you are. Absolutely. Um, because I see some of those same qualities in Orlando Bailey. Mm. Although you have many words. I have many <laughs> words. He, he, had a, he, had a, he had a really deep voice. He, he was sometimes saying, boy, you talk too much. And he does this little thing. You know, he was, he was just funny. You know, we, we had a, a really playful 
uh, relationship, we, you know, we played like we were adversaries. Like I would always, you know, get on his nerves and try to be super affectionate. And he'd be like, boy, get off me. But deep down, he loved me. He would ask, you know, his wife on Sundays and even sometimes throughout the week, where's that boy? Where's that boy at? Tell that boy to come on over. Are we doing, you know, I love to grill steaks on the grill. And so every time that happened, he's like, where's that boy? Call him, whatever. So it was, you know, just a loving and fun banter and relationship and I'm going to miss him. He, he touched so many people because, you know, you know, men with that hard exterior, when you find out that it's just an exterior and that they're nothing but softness and teddy bear on the inside, you just, you know, so rest in peace, rest in paradise. Uh, Russell Jones, we will uh, see you on the other side. Sounds like a wonderful man. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. Okay, y'all, it is time for Hot Takes, where we run down some of the week's top headlines in the city of Detroit. Hot Takes, is ShotSpotter effective? Data on Detroit technology fuels this debate. Donna, what say you? Well, you know, I was on here um, just a couple months ago after we had a loss in my family. Kevin's niece was shot. And at that time, I was thinking shot spot or anything, right? Anything to mm -hmm. reduce the amount of gun violence. But of course, when you look at the data, the data demonstrates that shot spotter does not really do what it says it's going to do. And in fact, um, shot spotter has a tendency to cause more police surveillance mm -hmm. in certain neighborhoods and more negative police encounters. Um, so, um, I think that it's a problematic way to spend $7 million. Um, there's a lot of money that could be spent on other activities that would help reduce violence inside of communities. We've got to get at root causes. We've got to get at the trauma activities for young people, direct intervention. But chasing gunshots is not the way. Yeah, I think uh, the city currently um, is implementing its existing contract of $1.5 million. And I think the, um, the pushback that we're getting is the efficacy around the effectiveness of ShotSpider. And the data is still very unclear as to whether or not this piece of technology uh, works. And so for, for our listeners who are um, not as familiar with what ShotSpider is supposed to do, it's supposed to be able to detect when shots go off in neighborhoods and give the police an almost precise location as to where those shots have come from. Now, the data um, in the, the jury is still out on whether or not the data proves efficacy or not. And I think that uh, the debate that's going on at the council table right now is absent this this kind of data. Um, is it worth spending an additional seven million dollars to surveil the adversely? The other the other piece that I would like to highlight is that the mayor um, and the chief of police is touting ShotSpotter as a prevention method to derail shootings that happen in neighborhoods, uh, potentially violent shootings when in actuality it it shot spider is something that really comes into effect after a shooting has occurred so i'm not really connecting the dots as to how shot spider uh, can be a method of prevention right. when, you know, the technology only works when shots are fired. Right. Right. And the mayor used his stage at the Mackinac Policy Conference uh, this past May to tout um, the effectiveness of shot spotter. Well, look, look yeah. at what it's effective at doing. It's yeah. effective at sending police into areas where there are may or may not be gunshots because, you know, a car backfiring can sound like a gunshot. I'm not certain it can d differentiate between that and firecrackers or whatever. But in addition to that, it sends police on numerous trips. Now, this is the ACLU has done a study, mm -hmm. and they found that it sends police on numerous trips in Chicago more than 60 times a day into communities for no reason at all. Um, and keep uh, keeping the communities on high alert and expecting to confront a potentially dangerous situation. Mm -hmm. When you send police into a community anticipating danger, that's even more dangerous than sending police into a community, you know, just on the just to surveil and just check up on things. And so um, they're saying that um, there's a it gives a it's a recipe for trouble. 
and yeah. conflict between police and civilian populations. And um, they found that the perceived um, aggregate frequency of shot spotter alerts in some neighborhoods leads officers to engage in more stops and pat downs. Um, you heard of stop and frisk. Yeah. And, and one so, of our young people talked about this, right. just standing in front of his house. Yeah, Exactly. And so, um, you know, when you criminalize people or neighborhoods or communities based on perceived sound, it sounds like you're going to make that community safer. As you pointed out, it happens after the fact that I am concerned by the increase in policing, mm -hmm. um, in a dangerous type of policing, yeah. as opposed to investing in community policing or other efforts that are going to get at root causes. Yeah, I'm concerned about the increase in surveillance, but I'm also concerned about the increase in this dollar amount. Uh, one million dollar, one point five million dollar to seven million dollars is a significant jump without sure um, uh, data that proves the efficacy of this. And so the city's existing one point five million dollar contract is set to expire at the end of 2023. Right now, the system is being used in two precincts, uh, uh, precinct eight and precinct nine located. Precinct eight is on the city's far west side and it. Uh, precinct nine is right there in Gratiot and Gunston in that area. And so under this plan, uh, the downtown area cast corridor and much of the city's southeast side would be excluded from shot spider. Uh, the data also says that arrests were made in only 2% of the gunfire incidents that it detected. Weapons were recovered in 3% of all gunfire incidents detected by Shot Spider this year. So I don't know. I don't know if that's enough. I don't, and the, the, the council has been receiving a lot of public comment and pushback on this. I'm not certain as to, I'm not certain as to whether or not, uh, council would, um, Strike this down. We'll, well see. I mean, if you have um, something that is 98 percent ineffective at um, resulting in arrest, you know, you could have two percent without shot spotter. I think that the risk may outweigh the benefit. In fact, I'm pretty sure it does both in terms of cost and also in terms of community relations with the police officers. We're still trying to build that back up and peace. Now, I know that there was a group of people who met with the city. Um, just yesterday um, to discuss that and to try to negotiate some type of peace. So I'm interested to see what will happen as a result of that meeting. I like that you used the word risk. And I, I want to talk about, you know, calculated political risk. And I'm wondering if this council is willing to take on uh, the mayor and what the mayor wants to be uh, a flagship program under his administration. Is there uh, uh uh, political political will to disagree with him and go against uh, this proposal um, on part of council. And I'm not sure if, you know, I'm not sure if there is, you know, the willingness to, you know, stick for on some of these council members to stick their neck out and publicly disagree with the mayor on something that he really, really wants to happen. If I'm being honest, I'm being real about it. I mean, you know, I think that, you know, when you um, frame it as public safety, um, you pretty much get what you want politically, whether it is, you know, local public safety or whether it is national, you know, safety. There's this mindset of fear that's cultivated in certain quarters. And so um, I think it's, it, it's um, you know, I'm, I'm doubtful that you're going to see meaningful pushback. I can see people leveraging and saying, well, if you're going to spend seven million dollars on this, spend another seven million dollars on that. But for me, it's bigger than the price tag. Mm -hmm. It is also what is our approach to policing? I'm still mm -hmm. waiting to see what's happening with the lawsuit on Detroit Will Breathe, mm -hmm. um, where th the current police chief doubled mm -hmm. down on what they did years ago. And so mm -hmm. if increasing policing means increased police brutality, or police misconduct, I have concerns. And I know that there are many concerns that are still being raised about police conduct in our communities and with our most vulnerable citizens, our most vulnerable citizens being those people who are seen as the most dangerous, mm -hmm. not because of anything they've done, but because of how they look, how they dress, where they live. And now Shot Spotter puts a great big bullseye on a neighborhood and says, let's police these people more aggressively. So I think it would be helpful to... Um, not just weigh the cost, but also weigh the impact of this increased police on the well-being of a community. Yeah. And the, the last thing on this, I, I, I just want to also push back on the mayor's notion that Shot Spider would have prevented that mass shooting that happened on the West Side a couple of weeks ago. I think to politicize something as catastrophic and traumatic as that is just a new low and stop it. You know, just no. 
Yeah. <laughs> I could I couldn't I'm, believe I'm down that. with that. <laughs> <laughs> um hot takes. Feds to announce funding to convert busy I-375 to lower speed boulevard. Donna, what say you? Um the Transportation Secretary announced $105 million in funding for this. That will be that will allow the project to begin earlier, earlier than expected. Right. I think like three years earlier three years than earlier. Yeah. We've already had like about thirty million dollars coming from the state. Mm-hmm. Look at how much we're investing in um, resurfacing I three seventy five. Imagine if we invested that in affordable housing and truly mm-hmm. affordable housing that low income people can access. Because if you really want to look at the injustice caused by I three seventy five, it was not transportation modalities it was housing displacement Mm -hmm. it was forcing people into overcrowded housing at the same time where by law and policy people were being segregated into overcrowded neighborhoods and Mm -hmm. so to say you know 70 years later this is what we're going to do it's an insult to injury i think we really want to see if we're talking about undoing an injustice look at the people who were harmed they're descendants some of them are still alive but they're descendants and say how are we going to invest in them um other than that i i think it's a waste of money i think actually what it's going to do is it's going to spur economic development it's going to make rich people richer while poor people stay poor and the consequences of the um demolition of black bottom remain unaddressed oh but donna this is you know part of you know a broader community reconnection program that has been undertaken by the u.s department of transportation to attempt to reverse some of the damage done uh you know to these communities like black bottom and paradise valley and so you know my question you know from the beginning is who gets to take advantage of this outpouring of money that's coming in for for this project because people are going to be rich from this right who who are the contractors who 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 are the biz who what what kinds of businesses and zoning will exist where we and who would be selected and you know all of that i do think that there could be i don't know if this is misplaced optimism uh, because this is happening, it's going to happen. Um, could there be, uh, you know, sort of first dibs on part of, you know, entrepreneurs of color or descendants of, you know, families who are displaced by by uh, by the uh, surfacing of the freeways uh, running through Black Bottom and Paradise Valley uh, to, you know, sort of take part in, you know, this 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 economic engine that they're trying to build. I don't know. You know who really championed this whole concept of black capitalism as an alternative to black economic justice? It was Richard Nixon, Tricky Dick, who was very good at coming up with things like this. Um, <laughs> you, had to, you had to be my age to understand that's what people called him. But, you know, <laughs> Richard Nixon was a person who championed this concept. And ever since then, it doesn't matter what presidency you have, Ronald Reagan, um, Donald Trump. Every time people have talked about justice, they said, we're going to make this group of black people richer. We're trying to build your wealth. And the wealth that those they're building on part of those black people always is um, relegated to very few. It does not oh, address the structural issues. So absolutely. if you're going to do it, by all means, let black contractors have their shot. Make sure you hire black laborers and all that kind of stuff. But the reality is Wealth never really trickles down, no matter who's holding that wealth, white people or black people. And if we're really looking at impacting the people who are there, let's build affordable housing there. Let's Mm. build housing that replaces some of the housing we've lost over the past, you know, 50 years. Mm. And then I'm I'm down for it. If you're talking about creating a community where Mm -hmm. um, you're going to have all kinds of mixed income housing with a focus on lower income housing, you're doing something different. Mm -hmm. But if what you're talking about is extending downtown across the freeway into Lafayette Park, which is already already unaffordable, then what you're doing is expanding the domain of wealth. All right, y'all. That's going to do it for Hot Takes. If you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or you can email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Have you always dreamed of being on the airwaves? Well, the Detroit Eastside Engage Podcast Network, or DEEP for short, is here to help make that dream a reality. 
Located inside the Sotomayor, the Deep Network offers studio space and production staff to help get your podcast idea off the ground. Doesn't take a whole lot of work to get started. Just visit the Authentically Detroit page at ecn-detroit.org or call Sarah at 313-948-0344. Founded in 2021, the Stoudemire is a membership-based community recreation and wellness center centrally located on the east side of Detroit. Membership in the Stoudemire is available on a sliding scale for up to $20 per year or 20 hours of volunteer time. The Stoudemire offers art, dance, and fitness classes, community meetings and events, resource fairs, pop-up events, the Neighborhood Tech Hub, and more. Members who are residents of the Eastside have access to exclusive services in the Wellness Network. Join today and live well, play well, be well. Visit ecn-detroit.org. Welcome back to Authentically Detroit. We are so excited to launch our new series this week. Donna and I are going to take an in-depth look at economic fairness in the city of Detroit. But like the saying goes, if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So in honor of that, we'll start with a brief history lesson on housing displacement from our resident Colombian professor, Donna Gavis Davidson. Donna, take it away. <laughs> well, really, what I want to talk about today is this whole concept of Black Detroit. And the concept of Black Detroit in a nation like the United States, um, which when we were first brought here, we were brought here um, in a way that was really, you know, as, as chattel, oppressed for generations, for centuries. And then um, some of us made our way to Detroit. Um, one of my favorite when people talk about the worst um, Supreme Court decision, a lot of people are referring to this most recent Dodd decision. Oh, this is the worst Supreme Court decision in U.S. history. But I look at the Dred Scott decision of 1857, um, which was written by the chief justice at the time, Roger Taney, um, where he said Africans, African-Americans, and this is not what he called us at the time, had for more than a century before been regarded as beings of an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the right race, either in social or political relations, and so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect, and that the Negro must justly and lawfully be reduced to slavery for his benefit. He was bought and sold and treated as an ordinary article of merchandise and traffic whenever a profit could be made by it. This is how the U.S. Supreme Court viewed black people in 1857 when Dred Scott um, sued for his citizenship. In effect, Judge Taney was saying black people were not people in the eyes of the Constitution. We, the people, did not include black people because we did not qualify as humans fully and not as citizens. And, you know, after that, you know, we had the Civil War, people were freed from slavery, and a lot of people uh, made their way into you know, urban areas and um, leaving the Jim Crow South after post-Reconstruction. You know, um, post um, but I think it's important to understand this concept of Black people having no rights and the fact that this was not just an opinion but a law of the land that was very clearly articulated. Um, so when we talk about black people in Detroit, you have to look at the black people living in this U.S. in this context. Um, black people have been in Detroit since um, 1796, I believe, is the first black woman who was documented as being in Detroit. But in um, in, the, in the 19th century, you know, before there was um, um, before slavery ended, Detroit's population included about 65 black people. And that population grew to just over 4,000 by the year 1900. Um, there, the, there was an influx of population to Detroit. Detroit really expanded in population from about 4,000 people, I mean, 1,400 people to 285,000 people in that time period. Um, but that was largely driven by immigrants from European immigrants. Um, as well as some immigrants from other nations, I think Mexico and other places. But it was largely an immigration growth, and the black population remained really small. That small black population um, had a black society that included churches, political organizations, newspapers, schools, and the Underground Railroad. So when black people moved from down south to Detroit, they were moving into a community that was already developed, a black community that was already developed and segregated. And therefore, um, 
they did not just empty into a blank slate, but they sort of continued on movements that um, began long before they got here. In the um, 19th century, for example, there was an 1833 riot, and that 1833 riot was caused by the freeing of two escaped slaves, Lucy and Thornton Blackburn, um, from custody when they were um, the uh, the um, they were going to be taken back to Kentucky um, by the slave catchers, and instead, black people gathered in a crowd and used their power to free them and, and escort them to Windsor, um, Ontario, Canada, which was you know the route of the Underground Railroad. Detroit was frequently considered the the last stop in that Underground Railroad. So when those two um, people who freed themselves and then were freed from custody by the black community here um, were let go and, and allowed to go to Canada. Uh, there was a riot and black people were forced to leave the city of Detroit, but they acted collectively to support their own, even in 1833 when that was such a small population. And I'm proud of that. Um, so when um, the Great Migration began, the Great Migration didn't just happen. The Great Migration happened because people, um, after the end of World War One, the U.S. stopped allowing people to come to um, immigrant. Immig immigration had been um, greatly, you know, almost stopped in the United States from about um, 1,200,000 per year to just over 100,000 people. So the people moving to Detroit and all of these industrial centers were coming from Europe and then it was stopped after World War One. And um, all of the industrialists needed a supply of labor and they went south. Black people came seeking voting rights, free speech and assembly, public amenities and employment opportunities. But they were pushed out of the lands they were in by race terror, truncated citizenship, extreme poverty and stifled opportunity. Some people call it the great migration, but in my mind, it was the forced migration of black people from the south to the north. And you see forced migrations happening all over the world. Um, black people came to Detroit from uh, Alabama, for the most part, Kentucky, Tennessee, Mississippi, um, you know, and it came up through um, Ohio and Indiana into the city of Detroit. Um, when we got here, the city of Detroit, um, Henry Ford was bringing people with a promise of $5 a day. And this was more than any black people made anywhere in the United States. $5 a day was huge. In fact, $5 a day at that time was more than most white people made in the United States. So it was um, a, a great draw to the city. People, um, there was this unmet demand for services when people got here. And so you also had the growth of a merchant class and professional class of people um, who were servicing these black people who were suddenly making all this money, you know, again, it was a great deal of money. And yet at the same time, we didn't have access to integrated housing. So black people lived in very segregated settings. And in that segregated community that was growing in Detroit, that grew to about 120,000 people by 1920. In that segregated community, you had the formation of expanded black society, expanded black political power, and um, black people came together to elect Judge Murphy, for example, the Judge Murphy who presided over the trial of Dr. Ossian Sweet when he defended himself. He and his family defended themselves against people who were trying to push them out of their home. And they were all arrested. And Clarence Darrell was hired by the NAACP to fight for their freedom. Judge Murphy was the chief of recorder's court, and he was the judge who presided over that trial, a fair trial, and the first time in the history of the United States that a black man was allowed to defend himself at the expense of the life of a white man and didn't go to jail for it, didn't get lynched for it. So that was pretty amazing. And that was black people flexing their political power even at that time. Um, Marcus Garvey started the UNIA, the, um, what is the UNIA? I can't think of the name of, of the the... But the anyway, he started the UNIA um, and the, the, it was a movement for black people, black self-determination, black nationalism and relocation to Africa. And in Detroit, we had one of the largest branches of the UNIA in the nation. Orlando, you're going to tell me what it is. Universal Negro Improvement Association. Yeah, the Universal Negro Improvement Association. So Detroit had this super large UNIA, um, which is really cool. Um, we um, 
you know, had the NAACP. We had so many different organizations. We had churches. We had the Urban League. We had um, a lot of black social organizations were developed and political organization was developed inside the city of Detroit. And in resistance to that, you also had this growing Ku Klux Klan inside the city where I think when there were 5,000 members of the UNIA, there were 20,000 members of the Klan. Yet and still, black people exerted political power to have a um, Judge Murphy elected mayor of the city of Detroit and to um, be elected to seats in government statewide and, um, you know, to, to be appointed to civil service positions in the city. And so you have this growing black political power, the seeds of it, starting in the 1920s, growing to the 1930s. And towards the end of the 1930s, black people leveraged our political power to be um, to integrate the UAW, which further advanced. Now you have union positions and union leadership and, and um, you know, even as you're dealing with police brutality and housing discrimination, you have the growth of black power. And again, the growth of the black merchant and political class, especially in places like um, Black Bottom and Paradise Valley and in places like um, the North End and um, Conant Gardens and Eight Mile and Old West Side. There were these concentrated places where black people lived. Um, 1943, you had a rebellion or riot where white people attacked black people based on some rumor that happened um, in uh, uh, some rumored crime that happened on Belle Isle and it spread all through the city. Um, you had um, riots that took place regarding Sojourner Truth homes being placed in a predominantly white neighborhood and white people not wanting to see that integration. The federal government had to assure that black people were able to move into this housing project that was developed for us. But overall, um, you know, we still lived in a very segregated setting. Also in that time in the 1940s, um, that's when you started seeing the beginnings of urban renewal. That's when the federal government started saying, wait a minute, black people are living in horrible settings. Um, no, they're unsanitary. People are dying. Nobody should have to live like this. You had very poor infrastructure, raw sewage, people still using outhouses, people living in places where they did not have any control over their landlords and they could not access financing to purchase homes and they were not allowed to move many places. So black people were living in slum conditions. And the government's response was not, let's improve housing here. Let's eliminate housing discrimination. Let's build new housing to replace this old housing. Let's strengthen the infrastructure. Instead, it was slum clearance. Slum clearance cleared the land. And this is the process that made the development of I-375 possible, where um, people were displaced from Black Bottom, from Paradise Valley, and forced into other segregated communities where they were allowed to live by policy and by you know, the practices of landlords and private individuals. And in fact, when black people tried to move out, when they had the money to move out into other places, um, when there were not restrictive covenants, which, you know, basically said this home can only be sold to a white person. When black people managed to move out of these communities, in a lot of instances, they moved into uh, places where they were assaulted by, you know, rioters and other types of people who, um, threaten their lives. And so there was race terror in Detroit, even though we fleed race terror from the South, and we lived in concentrated poverty. Again, the government response was, let's clear out these areas and force people out of these areas because they shouldn't live like this. And many of them were forced into the area that was now the 12th Street area, around the place where, um, in, in the west side of Detroit, where you know, um, the 1967 rebellion took place. And part of the rebellion was a housing crisis. Part of the rebellion was police crisis and the policing of black Detroit. Um, during this time, however, you had the buildup of suburbs. And so um, you had this kind of interesting dynamic where black people were increasingly politically and economically powerful in a city where they were dealing with extreme racism, but white people a lot of times didn't want to live next door to black people. And there was a lot of anger at that power. And so people escaped. You also had, you know, a lot of pollution going on in the city and the like. So, um, 
you had um, a lack of business ownership because you had businesses that were forced to close. You had overcrowded, um, growing slums. And then the big four, um, there was police beatings and murders, growing right resentment, um, people returning from Vietnam in the 1960s. And so here you have people who've been forced out of where they grew up, where they lived, into overcrowded slums, from one slum to another slum that's overcrowded. Their businesses are closed, and they're being forced and drafted to go to fight a war in another land um, like your uncle. And many of them never really returned as whole people. Many of the people who were fighting in Vietnam were damaged. Um, but there was an over um, concentration of black people. Black people were way over is um, represented in the draft. And they came home to a land which restricted where they could live, where they could work, and where there was a lot of police brutality. Um, so, you know, following the 1960 rebellion, a lot of people say that's when Detroit fell apart. But in reality, that's also when Detroiters gained even more political power. That's when you had the formation of the Shrine of the Black Madonna. That's when you had the formation of the Republic of New Africa, Operation Get Down, Akibalan Villages. You had so many organizations form and so many um, people working collectively to say, let's cement our power in this community and let's fight back. Um, in 1974, Coleman Young was elected mayor of Detroit, and as mayor, what he was able to do is really clamp down on police brutality and increase, um, you know, significantly increase the number of black police officers, integrate the police force, um, integrate not just the people in the rank and file, but also the leadership of the police force and the fire department. He was able to extend contracts to black business owners, and he was able to um, work and leverage his power as mayor to ensure banks were um, more fair in their lending practices in the city. What he was able to do was to leverage his power to say, if you are going to have somebody working with the city on any project, I want to see black faces and leadership. And it changed the face of Detroit. Detroiters, um, when I grew up, and I was born in 1963, Detroiters um, occupied every position of power and leadership possible. And so, you know, when I look at it, it's not, you look at it, you say, okay, it didn't happen as a result of 1967. It didn't happen as a result of Coleman Young becoming mayor. Some of this happened as a result of the people who were doing the work in 1833 to build power and the institutions that survived until the day that Coleman Young became mayor. We were ready for it. A lot of people say people um, in communities that are freed from oppression are not ready to lead. We were ready for leadership because we have been leading. And the only thing that changed is that the yoke of oppression was removed such that we could lead freely for a while. And that's my story of Detroit, the buildup of Black Detroit. It didn't happen over decades. It happened over centuries. And the reality is that the people who took power knew what to do with their power. Now, a lot of people will say that the fall of Detroit, and we'll talk about it next week, the failure of Detroit to continue growing um, while Coleman Young was mayor is a reflection of the inability of Detroit people to lead and take care of themselves. Black people do not know how to lead. But in fact, what we're going to talk about next time is the structural and institutional forces that help to dismantle the power that we built over a decade and a half. I mean, a century and a half. And, you know, really help us understand that this is something that our ancestors fought for over many generations. And I think we have a responsibility to try to make sure we preserve, we preserve what they created. Hmm. Amazing. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. More with Donna on the way. Bridge Detroit is your news and engagement platform that is telling the stories of Detroit is rooted by community priorities. Started in 2020 by Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Stephen Henderson, the newsroom has already established its footing as the go-to source for hyper-local perspectives that asks the hard questions, brings accountability, and searches out real solutions. It's free to become a member of this award-winning news organization. Visit BridgeDetroit.com today to sign up to receive the news delivered right to your inbox. Bridge Detroit by Detroiters, for Detroiters. Have you always dreamed of being on the airwaves? 
Well, the Detroit Eastside Engage Podcast Network, or DEEP for short, is here to help make that dream a reality. Located inside the Sotomayor, the DEEP Network offers studio space and production staff to help get your podcast idea off the ground. Doesn't take a whole lot of work to get started. Just visit the Authentically Detroit page at ecn-detroit.org or call Sarah at 313-948-0344. Welcome back to Authentically Detroit. Listen, before the break, you heard Professor, Professor Donna Givens Davidson give a brief but, oh, you know, thorough history of, you know, how black people have shown up uh, in Detroit since what, 1790? Would you say 1797? 96. Yeah. Ni- 1796. Oh my gosh. What uh, just a powerful, powerful presentation on part of Professor Givens Davidson. And so, We're going to take uh, just a couple of minutes, a few minutes to sort of, you know, unpack, you know, some of some of what you said. And one of the things that was really striking to me is the notion that uh, black folks just sort of woke up and realized that their political power and elected Comey Young in 1974. (laughs) when indeed you say that black folks in the city have been building political capital and our own society for a century and a half leading up to the election of Comey Young. Can you say more about that? Yeah, you know, it's really amazing because one of the reasons that our ancestors left the South Mm -hmm. was because they didn't have voting rights. Mm. They had the grandfather test, the poll tax as an outright terror to keep black people from the polls. I was so amazed to learn that when black people moved to Detroit, within a couple of years of us living here, we were voting and not just voting randomly for whoever, but saying, let's work and make our votes count. And it had to be the work of the pastors and all of the organizations in the city saying to people in a place where you're not really welcome, let's let's merge our power so that we can act collectively. Mm. Mayor, judge. Frank Frank Murphy Murphy would not have been elected judge if black people did not vote for Judge Murphy. So how significant uh, was it for uh, the nation and especially the city of Detroit for uh, a judge to be elected on the backs and on the votes of black folks at that time? Well, he knew that he needed to address the needs of black people. He understood how he got into office. Yeah. And I'm not going to say he did it out of a sense of um, gratitude because he actually built a multiracial coalition of working people in order to become the the judge. But he understood who elected him. Mm. And he was being elected against the wishes of Henry Ford. And this is interesting because Henry Ford brought black people to Detroit thinking he could control us, right? Mm. Let me get this nice group of people who will come here. And since nobody else is going to take care of them, I will. Mm. And he actually had um, used political and he he had goons coming in and beating up people who um, refused to follow his wishes. And he created this industrialist group and they had selected four other judges Mm. against his wishes and the wishes of the Detroit News and the Detroit Free Press, who in those days accused black voters of voter fraud, sounding just like 2020. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay? I'm unchanged. (laughs) You registered your address as a pool hall. Nobody lives here. Now, you know, black people, some of them did have to live in pool halls. Some of them did live upstairs. Because there was no housing, right? And so uh, maybe there were... 10 people living at this address. You had people sleeping in beds in shifts because there were not enough beds. Mm. But um, Judge Murphy um, um, understood that he had he had a political responsibility. And then when he was elected mayor, this is the most interesting. Was that unprecedented before before we go before we go to his election uh, as mayor at the time? Was that sort of showing out of political power on part of black folks in an urban course unprecedented in the United States? I can't say it was unprecedented in the United States because in East St. Louis, um, my people were from East St. Louis. My father's people were from East St. Louis, Illinois. 
And in East St. Louis, Illinois, before you had the bloody summer of 1918, you had mm-hmm. in um, East St. Louis, you had a, a racial program there mm-hmm. before Tulsa had happened in East St. Louis. And one of the things is that black Republicans in East St. Louis were so angry at the Republican Party for not taking care of their needs that a lot of them ended up flirt, just flirting with Democrats and saying, maybe we'll vote for Democrats. And it created uh, just a lot of hostility and a lot of anger. Um, and that's not the only thing, but, you know, union busting and all these other um, issues came into um, play. But the issue is that black people were exerting power in East St. Louis, Illinois, 1917. I haven't studied the whole United States, mm-hmm. but what I do know is that our people are intelligent. Our people are strategic and understand what to do when they have power. The mm-hmm. problem for us is that we haven't always had enough power to really affect the kind of change we've wanted to change. So I'm, I'm really proud of what happened in Detroit, but I don't want to in any way minimize what was happening in other places. Mm-hmm. Um, if I had enough time, I'd learn about what black people were doing all over the United yeah. States, but I have a day job. But, <laughs> but I think that what is significant is Frank Murphy and his relationship to Detroit was, if not unprecedented, it was unusual. Mm-hmm. It was unusual in that we succeeded in Detroit. Right. We succeeded in getting this judge elected. And then the mayor, Mayor Murphy, elected. And Mayor Murphy had so many progressive programs. He created the New Deal in Detroit before FDR had the New Deal in the United States. Mm -hmm. And he was a Democrat. In a world where black people always voted Republicans, where East St. Louis uh, residents, black people were saying we might consider voting for a Democrat in Detroit. They did. Got him elected first as judge, then as mayor. And as mayor, he had all kinds of progressive programs that FDR then replicated on a national scale. Mm -hmm. In fact, consulting him and bringing him into his cabinet. So he was an amazing person and his his influence was helped to it was developed in part with in partnership with black people. He appointed black people. to So what he did when he was elected was unprecedented. What he did was elected was unprecedented. And it was pretty unusual, if not unprecedented for black people to help elect a Democrat mayor and to support a Democrat in power at a time when Democrats were really the power of the the people of the South. And for him to, you know, enact a progressive agenda that a agenda that was replicated at a national level, that that that's really cool. You told a story that I don't think a lot of people uh, really know when we talk about, you know, the city of Detroit and its role in the underground world and it's aiding in fugitive slaves. And you talked about Lucy and Thornton Blackburn. Right. Tell us that story. It was fascinating. And you only talked about it for like a second. I'm like, wait, this is good. I say more about that. They escaped from Kentucky to Detroit. And um, at that time, I've read that you had to register if you were a black person being Detroit. And I guess they used a false name, but Thornton was out somewhere and somebody from Kentucky recognized him and turned him in to the slave catchers because, you know, there's a bounty out on your head because the Fugitive Slave Act means that if you leave where you are, you can be taken back. It doesn't matter where you are and no city has the right to detain you or protect you. So um, somebody recognized him. He was arrested and um, placed in, he and his wife were placed in jail. When his wife was in jail, there were two women who were prominent in the community um, who visited the, the wife. One of them changed clothes with her. She was from a prominent black family and her father had some political power. So she changed clothes with her. And, you know, all black people look alike. So Lucy <laughs> and the other woman walked out of the jail together, leaving this prominent woman in the jail. They whisked Lucy away to Ontario across the river. You know, it's not a a long ride across the river. They whisked her away. Um, But Thornton was still in jail. And when they were taking him from jail to the courthouse for trial, um, there was a riot and black people stopped the police officers from um, taking him. The sheriff ended up being killed in a melee that followed and he ended up escaping to Windsor, Ontario. They then moved to Toronto and um, they started the first cab business in Toronto. This black couple escaped from slavery in Toronto, started the first cab company in Toronto. So the United States sued for extradition, extradite these criminals from back to our country. 
And it all went all the way to the Canadian Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled that they would no longer extradite people as slaves to the United States. Wow. And that ruling was made based on actions that Detroiters took courageously. <laughs> That's amazing. And this is at a time when, you know, their lives were at risk. So whenever this happened, people were being beaten, they were thrown out of their homes, and they had to leave the city. And a lot of them ended up going to Windsor um, until the tempers died down and then coming back. Mm -hmm. And some never came back. So there's a pretty significant black population in Ontario that was developed as part of this Underground Railroad. But Detroit had the Second Baptist Church mm-hmm. was very engaged mm-hmm. in that process. And um, so we have a long problem. The one right there in Greektown that y'all ride by all the time that y'all really <laughs> probably don't even right. read the historical marker that's there. Yeah. All right. um, I want to talk uh, about, you know, a lot of what you highlighted. You highlighted um, economic disparity. You highlighted uh, government sanctioned um, clearance of black economic centers in uh, neighborhoods. Um, you also highlighted, um, you know, the the kind of racial terror um, and violence uh, that happened. And while while you were talking and describing, you know, these these circumstances, I couldn't help but think about where we find ourselves today. Donna, how far have we come, and where do we got to go? Where do we where do we have to get to? I mean, we're at a point right now where um, black power is um, being dismantled everywhere you see it. You know, it's in it's significant in cities across the United States in so many ways through economic means. <laughs> you can starve a population. Look at what happened in Cuba when uh, government was installed there. There was a revolution and we didn't like Fidel Castro and we decided he was the worst person in the world. And so the United States used economic tools and economic embargo to starve Cuba. To starve Cuba, yeah. And to try to force Cuba to change its path based on economic privation. If you look at what happened in cities across the United States and the way that government sort of rearranged how it supported cities, um, when cities became black and Hispanic and were no longer the havens for white Americans, cities no longer enjoyed the same kind of support from government that they did in the past. And at the same time, the government that has was, was withdrawing support from cities had invested in the development of suburban America. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of interesting. Um, right now, we don't have the same kind of housing discrimination, but you have the legacy of a wealth gap and you have the legacy of so many things. And so... People just can't afford to live in places. You know, if you look at the color of law, you if you look at Richard Rothstein and him documenting how a wealth housing wealth gap was formed, then even if you're making the same amount of money as a white person with the same level of education, your family wealth is probably going to be less. And now I'm reading another um, book, I think it's called White Wealth, where the author talks about the way that our tax policy uh, um creates a a wealth gap, um, even today. So I think right now we don't use race directly. We have proxies for race that are just as effective as race in many instances. Like what? Well, crack cocaine is a proxy for race, Mm -hmm. right? Crack was something that black people used. Mm -hmm. And powder cocaine was something that wealthier, whiter people used. And so we have different laws and policies surrounding crack cocaine than powder cocaine. Mm -hmm. And that's somewhat closed. I think the the disparity is closed. So you don't have to say that we're going to put a black person in prison for life for selling a small amount of drugs. And we're going to be much more lenient on a white person. We just say crack. Mm. Or we can say, you know, standardized test scores is um, one of the ways that we evaluate whether or not we're going to support schools and um, whether or not students are seen as worthy and teachers are going to get the kind of support and be seen as effective. And standardized test scores are so correlated with race Mm -hmm. and wealth and race and wealth and poverty are so correlated, right, Mm -hmm. that you can almost tell if a school has a really high standardized test score, it probably has a wealthier and whiter population than a black school. So you don't have to say it. Um, Another thing is credit scoring. When was credit scores introduced? Like in the 80s, the late 80s, early 90s? You know, I'd have to go back and do some research. I'll figure that out. I'll know that by next week. But credit scores are based on not just whether you pay your bills on time. Wouldn't that be great? 
Do you pay your lease on time? Do you pay your electric on time? It's do you take out consumer credit and do you demonstrate the kind of practices that Nineteen eighty nine. Nineteen eighty nine. Do you stim- demonstrate the kind of practices that are important? And you know, by the way, standardized test score, standardized testing, the way it's used is relatively recent too. Mm. When I was a kid, I mean, I took one test. I think it may have been an IQ test or something when I was a kid. And my mother wouldn't open up. She would get the envelope and tear it up and throw it away because she mm-hmm. said, "I never want you to think to let anything on a piece of paper tell you how smart you are." So mm. I don't know what my IQ is. My mother would let me know. <laughs> you know? I'm hoping it was high. No, but I mean, the reality is that when you start thinking that this test score, this thing that you're doing can evaluate whether or not you're intelligent and we buy into it. You know, there was a time even when black people would say, you know, these tests are racially biased and we fight that. Credit scores are racially biased and we fight that. What kind of scares me is the way that we've internalized the logic of that, such that when Bank of America said, we're not going to use credit scoring, black people were the first ones to say, oh, I don't trust them. You're not going to use credit scores? What are you going to use? You know, so mm-hmm. I think that the, the challenge right now, so that the, the, the institutions are no longer as overt, but what you have is people living in concentrated housing, people living in dilapidated housing, people being oppressed by the police, people being politically powerless. You had emergency management all through the state and places where black people lived, which was the suspension of democracy, the taking of democracy. You have That's why I had to set that record straight. <laughs> like, let me let me clear this up. <laughs> Oh, when they called you a czar? Yeah. I got to be honest. When, when, I, when I read somebody call you a czar, I was so offended. And then I looked up czar. Uh-huh. And I saw that czar does not necessarily mean that. Yeah. And so when I called you czar, I'd already looked up the definition yeah. and accepted a broader definition. Of course. But, but Detroit? My first, but my first uh-huh. read was just like Detroit. Just like I was the rest like, of Detroit. I don't even know if that's a compliment. <laughs> Because you're such a good person and the way that you honor people is through such a loving spirit that mm-hmm. it just felt in conflict. It was misplaced. It, it, was, misplaced. it was just misplaced. It's not your character. Yeah. But yes, I mean, you know, emergency management, it, it was politically, when you talk about not having voting rights, mm. if you vote, but the people you vote for don't have power. You don't, have voting, you don't have voting rights. Period. And right now you have a whole Ooh. bunch of people all over the world. I mean, most of the Republicans running for office right now in the state of Michigan are running on the basis that they don't believe Detroit's votes should have counted in 2020. So we've come some places. I'm certainly doing better. And I want to always honor my ancestors for putting me in position to be in a place right now where I'm not struggling like they had to. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not struggling like they had to. I'm not struggling like my grandmother had to. My grandmother had to clean houses for a living. And, you know, I had to live upstairs in somebody's home and leave her kids with her, their aunts because she could not afford to take care of them. Mm-hmm. And my grandmother was, I'm, I'm not going to say she was as intelligent as me. She was more mm-hmm. intelligent than me. My grandmother spoke seven languages mm-hmm. on somebody's floor, scrubbing those floors because she, that's, that was her economic that's opportunity. Crazy. So when you look at the, you know, the just completeness of the um, oppression in, you know, those years. I can't, I I don't want to pretend like everything is just the same. I think it's ridiculous to say that Mm -hmm. we're sitting here able to have these conversations and live comfortably. But I think that so many of the people who are like us, look like us are still living like that. And so there's more people doing well, but there's a whole lot of people who are doing very poorly. And you know what? The prison population, nobody who is incarcerated right now is doing better than their ancestors were Mm. because it's legalized slavery. It's legalized servitude. People are, I mean, there's nothing. You can't vote. You don't have any rights. You don't have, um, you know, humane conditions. And so many of our people. And you can be counted for the economic benefit of the community that you are imprisoned in, which is absolutely insane. Just just like our ancestors were counted on those plantations. Mm for the census, mm-hmm. for the political power of the landowner. And so um, I, it's changed. Mm. There's still too many people oppressed. I'm doing better, but there's too many people who aren't. And the way things are structured, it's not going to get better because we know that as climate changes, as we're dealing with some of these global changes um, that are not moving in the right direction, the people who are going to pay the biggest price are the people who had least power to begin with. Um, So it's important for us to start fighting back now, I think. I think it's important for us to disentangle some of the 
um, the, the, the institution so at least we can see them as they are and then build alliances because we're all in this world together. Mm. And even if they poison our communities, they're breathing bad air. If they're poisoning our water, they're drinking it too. If they're poisoning our soil, they're being impacted. The whole world is being impacted on the practices that have been visited on black and brown people across the world. And our economic system is fraying. You have so much anger and so much dissatisfaction. A lot of people who are angry and dissatisfied are turning it and blaming it on us as black people, blaming it on Detroiters for not mm-hmm. making the right decisions. But the reality is Correct we're all struggling. Right Correct we're all it. struggling. And so I think we can fight together. I believe in progress. And I believe that the only way for us to get where we want to go is to know where, we, where we've been and where we are right mm-hmm. now in 2022. Because a whole lot of white people will have a great conversation with you about race because they think it's all historical, mm. probably before they were born, mm-hmm. but certainly before they became adults and got a job and were helping to perpetuate it in whatever way possible. Helping people understand that racism still exists and some people are still benefiting from it. Baked Many into people, policy. you know, we saw that with the death of the queen, right? <sighs> we saw that with the death of the queen where it almost became sacrilege to say, I don't miss her. I'm glad she's gone. Or whatever it is that people say out of anger and hurt and pain. And it's a horrible thing to say that anybody's dead. But we were celebrating when Saddam Hussein died, there was a national celebration. And I guarantee you when Putin dies, people will celebrate. Mm -hmm. The monarchy, the Britain, Great Britain, put people all over the world in terrible, the United Kingdom, is that what they call themselves right now? Yes. United Kingdom. The United Kingdom. Um, The the, the UK. Keep keep changing your name. But that United Kingdom, the empire, um, I was looking at what was done to Kenyans placed in concentration camps and to people in Nigeria who have direct memories Mm -hmm. of things that have happened to them. In the Congo and just everywhere. in, In India. And in China. So when you have this, you know, historical track record of that, and then also you have this enormous wealth and privilege, everybody's not going to care. But, you know, when it's black history, get over it. When it's white history, some people are still reenacting the Revolutionary War. And every year on 9-11, we have these commemorations. But when it's black history, you can't even think about the fact that Mayor Wilson Good, a black man, bombed the homes of families in Philadelphia because they belonged to a religion, and he said they were polluting the environment. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about it. It's over with. Yes, housing discrimination happened, but why are you still dealing with the Tulsa happened? That's in the past. Nobody's living if they are they're in their 90s, and so we keep pretending like the children of the people who did this did not enact policies and practices that are continuing this to this day. To perpetuate, yeah. Um, so we need here. Lin-Manuel Miranda to write a musical about <laughs> No, we do not. Oh, no. We... You're talking about reenacting a revolutionary no, war. That's what Hamilton is. No. And it's so widely regarded as a piece of art. I'm joking. And I'm it's joking. It's so widely regarded as a piece of art. And it's so falsely narrates his legacy it's like we have this desire to lift up these founding fathers and i just can't all right y'all listen (laughs) this conversation on economic fairness and uh, the financialization here in the city of detroit will continue all month this is our new series and this is our new show format do you like it let us know. Donna, it's time for shout outs. Donna, you want to shout out? You go first. <laughs> okay. I would like to shout out uh, the terrific, terrific team at Bridge Detroit. Um, I think that we have really found our groove, our voice, and we are rocking and rolling. We are showing up in spaces and community. We are being welcomed. We are being called on to ask questions and to tell stories. Um, and we are being supported. Uh, we In the summer, last month in August, um, you know, I had this bright idea to have, you know, we wanted to, we knew we were going to have a, a fundraising campaign. And I'm like, oh, I had something. I 
you know, stewarded a campaign at ECN a long time ago called uh, Give Five for the East Side. And it was such, it was so accessible to everybody. And I was like, hmm, can we recreate something like that? And we called it, I got five on it. And the response blew blew our minds. Um, and so not only are we being, you know, supported by philanthropy and, you know, foundations, which is great, but people in the city of Detroit see the value in what we're doing and support us. And so I want to shout out what I think is the best newsroom in the city of Detroit. Uh, Bryce Huffman, Nushrat Rahman, Olivia Lewis, Malachi Barrett, Jenna Burke, Christine Ferretti, Catherine Kelly, Stephen Henderson. You all are the greatest to work with. Well, and in that vein, let me shout out Eastside Community Network. <laughs> um, I am so proud of us. Um, you know, when we do work, that is just blows my mind all of the time. First of all, you know, last Friday or last Saturday, we had a health fair here. But at the same time, we were supporting a walk by one of our elders in the community, Willie Mae Gaskin. Miss Gaskin. We have invested in people. Who Eric like, Thomas, chief storyteller of the city of Detroit, needs to profile ASAP. At ASAP. Yes. So she had a walk and she always honors firefighters and police officers in her neighborhood. Just a real neighborhood gem. Um, we work here most Saturdays and um, people show up and we're working with small community groups, really investing in them. So it used to be that we got people to always come to our events. Now we support as many events That's in the right. community as um, we bring here. Sometimes even more our staff are stretched, but really we're hardworking, trying to make great things happen. Um, I can't call out any single leader here because everybody is just hitting um, hitting their stride. And um, if you look at what's, what's going on in climate equity, we had a transportation forum last week, I believe. We've done a power building forum here. If you look at what we're doing with um, our sustainable housing, um, we're just doing amazing work. Our youth department, our, um, our community organizing um, resources and engagement work is tremendous. Our work on Mac Avenue, our community economic development work, wow. I can't even keep up with it anymore. And I think that, you know, when you run an organization effectively that's trying to do a lot of things, you should not be able to keep up with everything because the experts are doing the work on the job and they're just coming and telling me about it. So I'm really proud of the team that we've established and the momentum that we have in this community. Um, thank you, ECN. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of Authentically Detroit. We'll see you next time. Until then, catch the wave.